Welcome to Cast Dice, the podcast that explores the great big wild world of tabletop gaming that exists today. It has been said once or twice, mainly on this podcast, that we are in the middle of a gaming renaissance. There are just too many great games that we can spend our hobby time and our hobby dollars on. It can lead to a serious case of not knowing what to play next. And I guess that's the purpose of this podcast. It's to dig into the games that uh, my guests and I enjoy playing, to talk about big industry events, to talk to the people that create these games. And I am so excited because today we get to talk to one of those creators. One of, well, a man who created one of my favorite games to play in the last couple of years. Uh, This is, I believe, his third time on the show. Uh, But this time, we are not talking Gaslands. We are going to be talking about the newest endeavor from Michael Hutchinson, not to be confused with the uh, the lead singer of In Excess uh, being an Australian podcast, but we're going to be talking A Billion Suns from Planet Smasher Games. Mike, welcome back to the show. Hey, Brad. It is so good to have you here, man. Uh, you have to be excited. I mean, the last time we talked, Gaslands had, you know, was into its second edition. It was doing well. And everywhere I look, I mean, the Gaslands book itself appeared in the background of a South Park episode. I mean, <laughs> I mean, surely this is not what you expected when the game first came out. This is not what I expected when the game first came out. No, uh, I don't know what I expected. I was just delighted to have a war game that I'd written in print that people could play. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's been a wild ride. Um, and it continues to be a wild ride, um, particularly in the in the communities uh, on Facebook and on Board Game Geek uh, mm-hmm. and Reddit. Like just the amount of like creative cars pouring out of the Gaslands community is a solid and continuing delight. Now, if you're new to this show, you would have to be new to this show to not have me hear you know not having heard me talk about Gaslands previously as i played it tons but it is a post-apocalyptic dark future car racing slash car combat game that is ingenious because it it plays well which is it's a great game but the thing that a lot of people got hooked by and then grew to love the game or got a chance to play the game and then figured out it's a great game on top of it was that it's a miniature agnostic game where you basically arm up Hot Wheels cars. There's an infinite variety out there uh, in the ether. Everyone seems to have them somewhere. And thanks to Mike, I literally have boxes of Hot Wheels cars downstairs. Um, (laughs) Thanks, Mike. My wife does not thank you, however. (laughs) But the community and the modding that has been going on, I mean, it is more than just sticking a machine gun on a Hot Wheels car and saying, you know, the Australian uh, expression, Bob's your uncle. No, I mean, it is the the level of conversion is unbelievable. I mean, people are literally cutting apart diecast cars and rebuilding them to create what they want on the tabletop. It's unbelievable. You have to you have to love that level of commitment by the community. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Actually, this Christmas, I treated myself uh, to a new tool. I got one of those Dremel uh, hand sort of drilled doodads that has a little spinning blade that you can use to cut the cars up. Because I've been watching people making sort of proper Mad Max cars for a few years now in the mm-hmm. community and just like goggle-eyed at the fact that you can stick a bunch of different toy cars together but hadn't really taken the leap. So I bought myself a Dremel and started flinging little pieces of metal all around my hobby area. Um 
it feels dangerous, but it's exciting. So I'm, I'm on a I'm on a, a new uh, Gaslands hobby tip at the moment, trying to figure out what I can do by slicing toy cars up. But yeah, it's such a it's such an easy um, it's such an easy entry, partly because the obviously because the, the toy cars are so cheap. Um, but that has a bunch of knock-on effects. Like uh, it's really fun to get uh, sticking uh, with them because it doesn't really matter if you ruin them. And painting them is also mm-hmm. quite low risk because if you naff one up, then you know you just open open another one for another dollar or whatever. So yeah, it's um, it's yeah. Once you get going, it's kind of addictive. But even when you ruin something, it it it's post-apocalyptic gaming. It kind of suits, right? right? <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, putting dings and dents and uh, naffing them up is not, yeah, it's all going to fit. All right. Well, we have talked about Gaslands to death, and you it has come out in a second edition, hardback book by Osprey Games, but that isn't why you're here today. We are here to talk about your newest offering, again, through Osprey. Um, and just like the original Gaslands, it is going to be one of their awesome blue book range, which makes it cheap, cheerful entry point if you're looking for a good game to pick up. But again, just like Gaslands, having looked through the rules of A Billion Suns, it is cleanly written, lots of great detail in there, and it isn't just a beer and pretzels game that is a fire and forget and never play again. Like There's a lot of thought and a lot of work that's gone into this. Now, you talked about you starting to work on this on this show a long time ago, years ago, how long have you been working on a billion sons? And I guess, talk to us a little bit about the process of how it's come into actually existing. Yeah, sure. So, so I guess like way, 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 way back. Um, I maybe mentioned this when we spoke the first time, but, Mm -hmm. um, when I was a kid, I used to write, um, little war games for myself because uh, i came out of that era where um white dwarf had a lot of rules in it where uh, they would release a new game like man of war and then they would stuff a bunch of rules for the game into the magazines you could kind of get a good sense of what the game was like uh, even if your pocket money didn't extend to uh, actually af- being able to afford the real game right. and I recovered some of my game design notes from my uh, from my parents' house a few years back, and in there was a couple of uh, games. One was called Speed Demon, which was something that was like a racing game that I'd written to use uh, orc bikes and buggies. And the nice. other was a game that was origi- that was in a very original uh, twist called Space Fleet, which is, of course, a game that already exists. Yes. But Space Fleet was my sort of smash up of um, what I imagined uh, Space Fleet was like and what I imagined Manowar was like, having owned neither of those games. And so there's a ring band folder that I had that's just stuffed full of these sh- uh, spaceship silhouettes that have got all these little boxes on them which are hit locations uh, which because i was 11 are also the locations that you can march troops through because you know why not you've got an entire summer to play each game and make mm-hmm. it as detailed as possible so i suppose right at the beginning like spaceship games i've always loved and um my journey as a designer is one of like an, ex- an enthusiastic 10 year old sort of modifying and and loving the the games that he's playing in the hobby to where i am now which is trying to continue to turn that primordial enthusiasm into into fun tabletop experiences and i think the turning point was 
are walking out of, uh, I guess, Star Wars The Last Jedi at the mm-hmm. tail end of 2017. And Gaslands had been a big hit, I think. Um, you know, just got an agreement with Offspray to, to bundle up um, the expansions that I've been writing and put out a hardback edition. And off the back of the success of that, um, I went back to Offspray and said, hey, I'm sort of thinking about a spaceship game. Um, I'm sure you've been pitched these a few times, but here's my pitch. Mm-hmm. Um, and I caught Phil Smith uh, at Offspray just walking out of The Last Jedi. So who's right in the mood for some sort of uh, space operatics and capital ship stuff. So he took a look at the proposal and um, yeah, he was excited. He thought there was uh, some really intriguing ideas in the game and was uh, willing to take a take a bet on me because I'd, I'd uh, had such a, a good run with Gaslands. So yeah, that's that's where it grew from, I guess. Um, then I realized that uh, the pitch that I'd written, uh, I hadn't really got a game at that point. I was just excited about it and I had some, some core components of the game, but it wasn't really uh, ready for prime time yet. So yeah, that's mm-hmm. when the work started, I guess, was like January 2018. That's got to be a little intimidating to have some ideas and be ready to rock and roll, but then go, oh, ah, I have to actually write this now. In, in this in this case, it was okay because he said, all right, the slot that we've got open is, um, oh, I was like M- May 2020 was the original slot, mm-hmm. uh, which at the time seemed ludicrously far off, like more than two years to to write and deliver the thing. That's fine. No problem. We can, uh, we can, we can worry about that later compared to... Um, uh, I'm not sure if you've uh, if you've dug into the Blaster series of um, anthologies that we've been putting out, but Blaster Two mm-hmm. uh, has a game I wrote called uh, Mystic Skies, and in that case, I committed to do that game before I'd really written it, and only had three months to get it to production. Ooh. So, yeah, Billion Suns felt uh, stately and leisurely in comparison. <laughs> Yeah, that would be a big difference. But it hasn't just been you writing it in isolation, though. There was, and you put out a call, because, I mean, you are really big on beta testing games. Uh, and there was a call for Billion Sons a long time ago. And and you've been beta testing the game through iteration through iteration far b- before it was ever considered for publishing. And I think, again, that just speaks volumes about why your games work is because you work actively with a lot of playtesters and you take on the feedback. And I think in, in the past we've talked about how that isn't always the easiest thing because everyone has an idea of how to make the game better. Um, how do you manage that? Because that seems to be a very difficult task to take everything that ever you know everyone wants the best for the game, um, but everyone's got a slightly different opinion, I'm sure. Yeah, the... The key for me, and I I discovered this through a cup, like I I have had one car crash of a game, which probably will never make it out into the light of day simply because I made a mistake around this. Um, So the thing that has to happen before I like open it up for some proper play testing is I have to know what the game is about and what the sort of central unchangeable sort of principles and tenants are yeah. and initially with um initially with a billion sons i wasn't 100 percent sure whether it was sort of slightly more skirmish scale massively mass battle scale or um what specifically the most important element of the game was was it about managing resources was it about um managing kind of real world physics and um and uh um inertia and so on like until I had spent enough time with the game 
and a couple of like key collaborators um john brindley who was um one of the who, who was kind of the originator of the gaslands idea and one of the key um uh contributors to that game mm-hmm. was another like I really I needed I needed someone close to me who could challenge and ask questions about the game to the point where I was confident to defend it in front of people, um, mm-hmm. not in a sort of defensive way. But like right. if somebody comes up with an idea, I can say, oh, I know that that is not right for this game because this game is trying to do something else. And it took me a while to get um, what that was for A Billion Sons. Um because I had a bunch of high concept ideas that I wanted to fling into it. And um, only once I discovered, I think only once I discovered this sort of this idea that there were jump points and you didn't start with forces on the table like that. Making that work was hard. But once it was there, like all of the other parts of the feedback would kind of um, be able to be incorporated or bounce off of uh, the sort of central idea and principles. Um, And then I was able to take it out to a wider playtest group, um, both more detailed with my local group who were able to tear it to pieces and and tell me how much they hated playing it (laughs) because it was awful at several points uh, and to a wider sort of public beta group um, where they could give me feedback um, on how confusing it was to try and understand what the heck you were supposed to do before I'd written in all the niceties like tutorials and stuff into the book. Yeah. And the tutorials are great, by the way. This is a very different game from Gaslands. I mean, I can see from the way that you wrote it that it's you in that you like to write things out sequentially and clearly. This is a very interesting game in the way that it is conceptualized um, because it has some really interesting ideas that are very different from what you see in a lot of tabletop games. Uh, and there's great depth in there that that goes beyond what you'd often expect in an Osprey Blue Book. And I'm not talking down to Blue Books. I love the Blue Book series. I mean, just the idea of having the jump-in points is huge, but then you need to manage your own budget of what ships you're jumping in, what fleets, how many ships are in each of those battle groups, and how that all comes together really does make for a really interesting game. And that's all before you're moving, shooting, maneuvering, getting objectives. There's just so much to this. There's so, I have so many notes to talk about. Um, Shall we start? (laughs) Should we, we, yeah, yeah, should we do, should we just do a quick description of like how that kind of initial componentry works? Because before people have had a chance to look at the book, um, there's some sort of high concept initial stuff that yes. will become obvious probably is is obscure right now. Well, let's I was going to say, why don't we talk about the the setting? Let's talk a little bit about the universe, so to speak, uh, and just give people an idea of what what a billion suns is. So, in terms of the background, now we're dealing with an Osprey blue book, so the background is quite little. There's, you know, maybe 200, 250 words to to get this across, plus right. uh, all of the other little places next to photos and stuff where I can um, elaborate on it. So, the central conceit is really casting forward from the kind of corporate sponsors idea of Gaslands, mm-hmm. thinking what. Um, what maybe happens on Mars in the sort of 100, 150 years after Gaslands, which then catapults a, um, a, a sort of interstellar humanity that recognizes their cradle as Mars and that is in, sort of at its heart like a sort of, you know, uh, a, a silly, overblown, hyper-capitalist sort of um, society thrown forward. So... In terms of a sci-fi setting, it's 
it's quite uh, crunchy uh, insofar as it's not stuffed full, at least the way that I've currently written it. It's not stuffed full with, of alien races and, and evil empires. What it is, is essentially the sort of, you know, the same kind of riffing on the same kind of gags and, um, and themes of, uh, you know, the big, the big, the, the, the big evil overlord is really just the man that you're working for. And uh, the executive team of these mega corporations just give, gives not one hoot for the uh, millions and billions of people that uh, work among them. So you are the CEO of some interstellar corporation and you have at your disposal, you know, ranks and ranks of, uh, of battleships and cruisers, but also utility vessels and scout ships mm -hmm. and so on. And the jobs that you've got to get done, at least in the initial kind of mission set that comes in the book are all quite prosaic sort of um spacefaring civilization things like you gotta mine those asteroids and gotta um mm -hmm. ship those goods uh, in and out of planets and you've got to defend um your uh, your your corporate secrets against espionage and uh, you know maybe go whaling for space kraken and so the the this i this idea of like a a humming buzzing mega um uh, civilization spread across like an ever-expanding um, set of systems and people are constantly trying to find new systems that are filled with valuable stuff then then put their claim in and then uh, try and defend that claim whilst they can sell the rights the mining rights to the highest bidder and uh, and then carry on so there's a sort of um, wild west sort of claim staking gold rush kind of a vibe to it um, with uh, yeah with a heavy dollop of um, ludicrous um, sort of uh, mega tech corporation uh, jolliness slapped on the top of it. Mm -hmm. But it really does. I mean, you really do get what the goal of the game is. And in that you imagine a big corporation, what are you trying to do? Profit. You are trying to create profits. And this game does a wonderful job. As you say, you have some resource management in there because at the very beginning of this, you are literally borrowing back from the, the, the credits that you will be earning over the course of the game through objectives, through the battles, what's going on on the table, you have to kind of borrow from your own bank and then pay those back. And the person who has the highest profit wins, kind of like in real life. <laughs> That's right. It came out of the mechanical idea that I really wanted um, victory points to be the same the same victory points that you use to win would be the same thing that you use to um buy your your sh your ships and your your fleet mm -hmm. and having that single sort of balancing victory point system was actually it was there long before the sort of um the theme of the game but once the theme of the game bumped into that mechanic then just everything fell into place and what was initially called something really tedious like um tactical points or something mm -hmm. um once it was profit and loss it was like ah okay boom this whole this whole thing hangs together now it, it drives itself um yeah so the the idea that you uh start with nothing for this mission you start uh buying ships in on the first turn uh, according to the missions that are that are laid out on the tables in front of you and that pushes you into uh, debt. And as you pick up victory points from from executing against those missions and collecting the objectives and doing whatever you need to do, then you 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 nudge your you nudge your your uh, your credit rating out of the red and into the black. And um, it creates a really interesting situation because you've got two players, or three players, or four players. It plays up to four players. And as they start putting ships down, they're going into debt, but they're looking at each other 
and sort of deciding how many points to spend, how much um, how much ships they need to bring in to get the job done, but to get the job done whilst you're also trying to get the job done. And if I go ahead and spend quite a lot of credits on bringing something big and hefty in, you've got a really difficult decision in front of you, which is, okay, do I need to match or beat your spending to bring in some other big guns and, and fight toe-to-toe? Or do I try and play mouse to your cat and I, I underspend you it's easier for me to come ahead come out ahead because i don't have to complete as many objectives but i'm 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 it's a delicate balance because i don't have an, enough and you've got the firepower to take me out if i'm clever enough i can get away with less so there's a real like um there's a sort of escalation that is dynamic on the table um that players can decide how many ships they're going to bring in each moment and this happens at the beginning of every turn as well this is not yeah. there's no deployment phase at the start of the game every turn has a has a a jump phase at the beginning where you um potentially uh bring in ships and spend uh, yourself into more debt in order to mm -hmm. recover that cost from victory points well that's one of the things that makes this game and when i was talking earlier about this game having some really original concepts this is one of those, the, one of the big items I was thinking about, because you don't start with an army list. You don't start with an established force. What you have is a collection of ships off table. And as you go, you say, oh, okay, I need this. And then you jump those in. But you need to make sure that you have the resources to allocate to create the jump points, and then to bring in the battle groups, and then how many ships of each type do I bring in? It's a really dynamic process, and it makes for a, a super interactive game. You can, as you say, things aren't going well. You can start borrowing more you can, by um, deploying more ships. Uh, if all of a sudden you have some bad die rolls and or your opponent out deploys you and all of a sudden you're getting wiped off the off the space table, then all of a sudden, boom, you can bring in more to support yourself. But in doing so, mm. as you say, you're kind of putting yourself behind the eight ball that you have to get yourself out of. You're digging that hole that you need to then climb your way out of depending on what the mission is. But I think that really makes for a very dynamic gaming experience. Uh, and you're constantly asking yourself, do I have enough on the table? And you mentioned that it feels um, from reading it quite a lot like Gaslands. And I think that it, it, it is it is incredibly not like Gaslands mm -hmm. um, in that this is r rather than being a sort of making brum brum noises and things are flipping over and exploding. Although things do explode in this game yes. because I love things that explode. Mm -hmm. um, it's very much like <laughs> I, I talked about it as I was starting writing this. I talked about it as sort of my difficult second album. And what I wanted to achieve with this game ended up being a much more head scratchy sort of chin strokey gaming experience quite deliberately like i wanted to create something because because the 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 source material sort of crunchy sci-fi has for me a different flavor and sort of lights up some different neurons for me mm -hmm. um and what you end up with with the 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 puzzle that you've just described there is a sort of is a really interesting sort of unfolding tactical challenge where rather than just driving faster and and uh, flipping over more terrain like you do in Gaslands. There's a there's essentially a <clears throat> there's a setup that you there's a board state that you're given. You've got all the all the options in front of you. You can literally buy any ship to solve the problem. And then as soon as you start doing that or your opponent starts doing that, then that's changed the puzzle. And now you have to reassess. Um, and you've got lots of different. Um, 
you you have in front of you this thing called the command helm yes. which um gets a number of command tokens at the beginning of each turn and like fundamentally the command helm is not essential to your battle plan but it allows you to move command tokens into sections of that um what resembles a sort of saga battle board if you've played that game yes you can push command tokens into places of that board which are going to help you get your plan done so it's not essential to completing your plan but it will really help you kind of double down on the things that you want to do so if you really need to dash a battle group from one um location to another because you need to grab an objective or you need to um you need to protect a particular utility ship because it's holding the it's holding the 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 objective token that you need to get off the board and so you need to you know invest in in bulking up its shields you've got a set of options in front of you which which then can lock in with what you've got deployed on the board um, to sort of help you unpack this puzzle and help you um, lock in the things that you want to get done. With Gaslands, you had a little card for each vehicle that you were driving around the board, and it, it made tracking what's going on on the board really easy. With this, it, you could have gone, I think, more. Each ship got its own card. But again, depending on... And because I said there aren't any point values in this game per se... Um, there is a scale, and you can scale the game up to have you know big epic battles or to to for more um, space skirmishes, if you will. You can mm. even so it, you can have all sorts of different sizes, and that will change the the both the the credits that you're able to spend, and it also changes the objectives. But by having that command helm, where you're able to track your uh, command slots and the credits that you've spent. And the fact that you have it all laid out, again, just makes for a really easy gameplay experience. And you're not cluttering up your board with tons of counters that you need to keep track of. It is almost all on the helm itself, except for damage, which I believe you put next to the yeah. ships. But that makes yeah. for really easy, uh, if you're looking across the tabletop, you can very clearly see the board state. Because you can say, okay, that's the damage here, that's the damage there. And again, all of the the different options that you have as the evil corporation mega boss uh, are all at your fingertips. You don't have to go flipping through the book. There's a little description of each one, and it really does make uh, gameplay, you know, great. I'm a big fan. It's funny. It's funny you mentioned the possibility of of having ship cards in the game. So that's actually where the game started when I initially offered it to Offspray. Each each ship had its own little um, card, and there was a sort of roll a roller dice choose a hit location mechanic that was pinched straight out of um, Man of War. Uh, but as the game evolved, it became more. It became obvious that the game was about like how do you create zones of pressure and um yeah. uh, on the on the table so that your your opponent has all these different areas that they can't go or that are manipulated by you and the individual ships became much more sort of faceless and less interesting like the, the, one of the key images was was that sort of like you're a general in a war room pushing things around with a sort of um croupier's uh, mm -hmm. stick um, and so I wanted, for for example, the movement phase. I wanted to feel really like it's it's quite geometric, um, but it's very free and open. You can basically mm -hmm. pivot wherever you like and then shoot off to where you want to go. So there are some restrictions, but it doesn't have a sort of lumbering, um, inertia-filled capital ship movement system that you often see. Like it doesn't feel like maneuvering an aircraft carrier right. on, on on the actual ocean. Um, it's much more nimble than that, and it's a bit more 
the movement phase is supposed to just nip past and you're like okay where do i need these things to be shuffle up there shuffle up there because the interest is in how does that change the control zones on the table much less like did i pre-plan my kind of lumbering ship movements to to be in the right place um exactly that that's a, that's a nice that's a nice game experience but it's already amply delivered by um a, a bunch of other space games and i didn't i wasn't interested in in revisiting that but also makes yours and especially since you can bring more ships in and you know maneuver people around during the course of the game i would say better than a lot of other space fleet games that i've played this this feels a lot more fluid it and it feels a little more comfortable you can adapt and change on a dime and it just gives the game i think a grander scale it just feels like you're dealing with bigger expanses of space you don't have to plan where your battleship's going to be in three turns and you know what orders am i going to give then mm. you are actually in the moment giving directions that are being followed and of course, as we said, that is being done through the the helm. So of course, I said you have your name, you have your credits that you keep track of, um, but then you have uh, you need to manage a few resources. Are you going to put some 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 of your uh, choices? Are you going to choose to lean into seizing the initiative? Are you going to create jumping in points? And then how many battle groups are you going to jump in? And that doesn't even include what you're going to jump in. You just need to declare that you are going to jump something in. And then you have different tactical options as well, command effects that you can sink some resources into and then decide during the course of the game, oh, I, I think I really do need these attributes my ships need this little extra boost and that can really help you out over the course of the game i mean they really do change the way that ships can maneuver or fire or interact with other ships on the tabletop and so there's mm. a lot of choice but again it's fluid so there's a lot of choice that you can as you're as sort of the head of your fleet make over the course of the battle which is really cool i really i think it's a great touch yeah, thanks. Uh, I, the, I think the fluidity is is interesting because I, I wanted to I ended up needing to build quite a lot of fluidity and um, I guess like not feeling constrained into the game because the game itself, like tactically is quite chewy. Um, there's lots to chew on. And so if you're also wrestling as well as the tactical puzzle, you're also wrestling with a bunch of s slightly awkward and chewy um, mechanical things. Mm -hmm. Then the whole thing just became a little, <laughs> little bit of a drag to play. I know this because there were there were moments, as I as I've sort of alluded to before, there were moments where this game was literally unpleasant to play. Um, and so it's only through a lot of playtesting and, and switching things out that I ended up realizing where the things that needed to be chewy should be and where the things that should feel really sort of free and easy and um yeah like it's sort of simple stuff like when you place a new jump point onto one of the tables and we should talk about the multiple tables as well when you place a new jump point mm -hmm. it used to be like in earlier versions of the game that you have to do a bunch of measuring to figure out you know was this jump point nicely far away from all the other things on the table and one of the playtesters roofers was just like why do we need to do this why can't i just put a jump point underneath your other ship um and it turns out you you can and it's good and it's great um so there's a lot of freedom um there's a lot of unexpected freedom in the game like you can move wherever you want you can deploy ships wherever you want like th there's not a bunch of rules in the game telling you you can't do things there's just a tactical situation that asks you if you should do things right 
Right. Well, as, as I said, when you when you have the command helm, it really does allow you to to track that. Let's talk. Let's let's get into the turn a little bit here. Um, mm. So we have we have our turn, and it starts with the command phase, and that's when you have command tokens. Now, I talked about the scale of the game before. Um, the scale of the game is is a number from one to ten. One, of course, being small; ten being, of course, large. Um, and you mm-hmm. get the scale number plus three command tokens each turn. So if you're playing a scale one game, you get to allocate four command tokens uh, to your helm at the beginning of the turn. Now, you can put that, as I mentioned before, there are those the multiple boxes. One, of course, is to, if you want to try and seize the initiative, as in to make sure that you go first, um, yep. you put them in for jump points where you can either deploy a jump point and then that that costs one. And then another one would be if you want to actually have a battle group jump into each of those jump points. Now, battle groups are all ships of the same type. Um, so if you want to have uh, a fighter squadron come in, you can do that. And that would be a cheaper option. If you want a battleship yep. to come in, something on the other end, or you want multiples, that's fine. But you can't bring in a battleship and fighters, if that makes sense. Um, not without spending some more command tokens i mean that that's exactly like this is where this is where the um the scale of the game is kind of interesting so you mentioned before that the game sort of allows you to play from skirmish up to you mm. know almost mass battle scales and that um I d- i'm not sure exactly where this came out of but um I just want. I just wanted to give players the ability to say, "Hey, should we just play for forty-five minutes, or are we are we sitting down for a three-hour game?" Mm. And give people a way of of dealing with that. And so the scale actually affects the scale that you choose um, at the beginning of the game affects a bunch of different things in um, in the game and in the setup of the game. And it's a bit like I suppose because we don't choose army lists at the beginning, we can't say, "Are we playing a five hundred point game, or are we playing a twenty-six hundred point game?" Exactly. and know roughly what sort of experience we're getting in terms of the amount of toys we're going to be putting out and the length of the game so the scale that you choose and if you're playing a tiny little game you might play scale three i quite often play scale five if you want to push it you know scale eight or even scale ten that says okay i'm going to deploy if we're scale five i'm going to deploy five objectives for this mission or five comsats for that mission Mm -hmm. and because and i'm going to crucially put um, enough victory point cards into the contract deck, um, which we probably don't have time to get in how contracts pay out. But broadly speaking, the bigger the scale, the more um, victory points pay out from each contract. Mm-hmm. Um, and so because there's more money on the table to hoover up, it means that if you play a bigger game, it's worth investing in larger ship types. It's worth exactly. buying um a, a battle a group of uh a, of frigates or bringing in a, a battleship because there's enough points on the table in terms of those objectives to, to to make that money back if you're playing a scale three game and there's not that much um cash on the table in terms of victory points that you can hoover up if your opponent brings out a, ba- a battleship brilliant you've basically just won the game because there's no mm-hmm. way they can they can earn that money back um so there's, that's how the scale sort of ends up balancing the um the lack of points sort of agreed agreed upfront points values yeah and it as you say the the larger the scale the more objectives the more chance you have to earn the cash and that i mean so you might end up with having you know fighters and gun cutters at one end if you're playing scale two or three game 
Whereas, as you say, you'll end up with much larger ships and much larger groups of ships if you're playing the bigger mm -hmm. game because you you have the you'll be able to buy back uh, the money that you've spent or the credits that you've spent on your fleet over the course of the game. Um, so one one thing yeah. maybe worth mentioning here is uh, the get um, the game doesn't have factions per se it has mm. a single list of ships which is your sort of a la carte menu that all players are choosing mm -hmm. from and then they're, they're these standard ship types that you would expect from from science fiction so you've got gunboats and corvettes and frigates and battleships and blah 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 and because we're all choosing from the same list that's a sort of balancing mechanism and there is a there is a faction building system um in the book that we probably won't have time to get into but um i'm i'm really uh, excited for people to dig into but because you've got those basic ship types in front of you that's what you those are the tools that you've all got uh, to use and the ship types are all um, carefully designed to play different tactical roles um, and so even if you're playing a large scale game you're still going to see lots of the smaller ships like light utility vessels um, and recon ships because they do different things that just the other the other ships are not able to do. So whilst you're escalating at the higher end of the ship classes because you're bringing out bigger guns and cruisers are appearing and you now you now you need monitors to try and take the cruisers down. But um, in the midst in the midst of all that chaos like there are still you know lifeboats filled with survivors that need to get picked up and you're going to need a bunch of small craft in order to do that but those small craft are weak and poorly armored so now you need some defense so some other larger ships to sort of babysit them and now there's larger ships babysitting then you can bring out some larger ships to take out the babysits and you can see how like a, a sort of combined arms um uh, situation kind of unfolds quite naturally from from the fact that the different ship classes that you choose from have different roles to play. But it's nice. I mean, nice. you do have a standardized list of ships that sort of cover the archetypes of what you'd expect in a, a space fleet game. But you've also have the weapons. So it's not just that you have a class of ship and they have a particular number of dice that they're throwing out at the front every time. Um, there are weapon systems within those ships. And so um, again, you get that variety. It, it really does uh, get your juices flowing when you're thinking about what exactly an auto blaster does versus a defensive grid, rail guns, torpedoes, all the good things that you want in, uh, you know, macro beams in a, in a game on, on a tabletop when you're pushing spaceships around. You can almost imagine the silent pew pews happening as uh, things are firing. <laughs> but again, it, it's great and it really does fit like Gaslands was a uh, miniature agnostic game in that it used Hot Wheels cars with weapons strapped on. This is a true miniature agnostic game in that you can use ships from anywhere. Uh, and I suppose we'll yep. get to scale in a minute. Um, but I, I think, as you say, just having that list of sort of generic archetypes and generic weapons to go with those archetypes really does allow players to stretch their imaginations and really get get into it it's a great game well mike let's let's get back to the the turn itself let's go from so we go from the command phase we have the jump phase which is where you bring in the ships which is what we were talking about then we get to the tactical phase where you have alternating activations of ships or sorry battle groups of ships um maneuvering around the table you have movement you have attack uh can you elaborate in on that because there is so much to it and i i want to make sure that it's done right so yeah sure 
So the, the objective, so the tactical phase is, is essentially where we get into the meat of the activations. And the objective was that each activation should be pretty lightning quick. Um, so there's a couple decisions that you need to make for each battle group, and then you just crack on. Um, so the first thing is you choose an order for that battle group, and you can basically double move. You can, if you're, if you're, if you're, you've got a, a battle, an enemy battle group in your line of sight already, you can choose them as an engaged target, which means you get to reroll attack dice against them. You can um, uh, turn your cl internal klaxons on, uh, which is called red alert, and that will allow you to shed a little bit of damage mm -hmm. and recover a little bit of damage, um, or you can jump out. Uh, which is um, the uh, the sort of slightly unintuitive flee the flee the the the, the battle volume I guess um, mm -hmm. and that is uh, something that you'll find um, uh, particularly utility ships uh, making some use of. So having chosen your order, you can do uh, movement. Movement super simple. You just pivot the ship the the ships in the battle group literally any amount that they like, and then they head off in a straight line uh, equal to their thrust. And um, if you have moved more than 90 degrees, if you pivoted more than 90 degrees, then you can't shoot your uh, primary weapons. So you, you don't want to pivot more than 90 degrees in lots of situations. But of course, you can if you wish. You just have mm -hmm. to pay the price. Um, and then critically, after you've finished moving, before you get to do anything else, if you're sat inside the front 180 degree arc Auxiliary of an weapons. enemy mm -hmm. yeah of an, of an enemy ship and you're in range of that then they get to fire their auxiliary weapons which tend to be slightly you know lighter weapons with lower damage ratings mm -hmm. so as soon as you finished moving if you're in a bunch of auxiliary fire arcs then you get pew-pewed from um enemy things so that's the the sort of classic kind of Overwatch mechanic, or uh, if you've played Infinity, the sort of Snapfire mechanic, which I love because what it means is that the position and direction of ships becomes really, really important even outside of their activation. So as you're trying to get your jobs done, I can defend um, locations or objectives by parking enough auxiliary weapons to sort of cover that area so that mm -hmm. if you do bring one of your light utility ships in, um, it's going to get peppered with auxiliary fire before it gets to do any of its next stuff, which is jump out if it's going to jump out, fire its weapons, um, and uh, scan things if it needs to scan things. Um, it makes yeah, maneuvering and... really important in the game, and it makes it makes you really look at how you are going to uh, move and maneuver so that you are trying to stay out of that front 180-degree arc and how you want to get behind your opponent. It feels very much like, like a cinematic uh, space combat where you are trying to get behind things. You're trying not just to broadside someone. You're trying to get out of their arcs and then do the damage yourself. Uh, and it, it makes for great tactical opportunities as well. And this, this idea of this kind of escalation and combined arms... Um, cascades through a number of other small rules that i guess i'll just call mm. out for this example so let's say there's a there's a lifeboat and i really need to pick it up and i'm going to need a, a a utility ship to pick that lifeboat up if you've covered that lifeboat with auxiliary arcs from from you know from corvettes or whatever mm -hmm. to stop me from being able to do that my lightly armored light utility ship needs to get in there so now i'm going to have to use the um the rule that allows me to to envelop smaller ships with larger ships shields it's called mother's wing so if i stick down a a nicely um a, a nicely shielded ship like a frigate and they're within um 
uh, a small distance of the ship that I want to protect. The, the smaller ship can borrow the shield stat of the larger ship because it's kind of within the shield's bubble. Mm -hmm. But the problem is I need to activate them at different times. So the utility ship's going to leave the shield radius and then still get peppered. So that's when uh, another um, command um, helm uh, option called... Um, uh what's it called combined order comes mm -hmm. in so i can spend from my command helm to say actually i'm gonna i'm gonna activate a small cluster of battle groups together so now i can move the frigate first to provide the bubble of shields then i can move the uh uh light utility ship within that same kind of activation pocket that i'm in so i can defend that ship i can grab that objective and i've worked as a team within within the the different ship types that are working each other and you've you've burnt your you've burnt your um activations shooting um a powerful shield rather than peppering my uh, light utility ship and so that, uh, not to go into all the details of that but like that's the intention that i'm trying to create is you've got these little puzzles where you can draw from the different rules to kind of unpack um the right sequencing of things and the right um, command helm options to use. Yeah, there are a lot of difficult choices that you have to make over the course of a turn, um, starting with where you're going to put those command points on your helm to start with. And if you are going to, you need to really be aware of the board state to know when you're going to start throwing some of those command points onto command effects. Uh, again, you, if you're either sealing, seizing the initiative, you're, you're trying to deploy more ships, more jump points, or having those command effects, there's a lot of choices to make. And again, very fluid. Let's talk a little bit about shooting, because when you're firing weapons in this game, unlike a lot of games, you're trying to roll low. Um, why, why, yeah, that is very, that is not what you usually think of in a war game. This is, um, this is not simply because I always roll low numbers on my, uh, on my dice in Warhammer. You literally um, so just the, the, jumped to my next question. Is that because you already rolled ones? You wanted the game for you? Is that why? Yeah. The, the combat system was one of the things that has, um, changed the least from the, the, the very initial sketches of the game. I kind of had, um, this. I had this idea in my head of how you would deal with the ridiculously disparate sizes of um, interstellar vessels. So in in science fiction, you have these monster battleships, but you also have these absolutely minuscule um, little fighters. And they're just, you know, completely different scales. Um, and the sort of, in my mind, the sort of tracking systems that you would need the sort of weapon mountings that you would need like the kinds of weapons that that can that can target each or damage each seems crazily different so scratching my head on how to solve for a problem like that i came up with the system over a few iterations where each ship has a silhouette which is a value mm -hmm. um, from one up to i think maybe eight uh, or ten is the largest in the game yeah and that is a number that you need to um get equal to or under on your attack dice uh, to hit and then the weapons, depending on how powerful the weapons are, they roll different funny shaped dice. Mm -hmm. So a very light weapon will just roll a D6, an extremely heavy weapon will roll a D12. And so that means if you've got a little tiny fighter that's got a, a silhouette of three, um, then I need to get a one, a two or a three on a dice in order to hit that ship. So with a D6, with a light weapon, with a little tiny pew pew uh, blaster, it's actually quite easy to hit. A, um, a fighter because it's a 50% chance on a D6. But if I'm trying to shoot it with some monstrous planet destroying mega laser, yeah. which is, you know, probably takes half an hour to warm up and is is not on some kind of pintle mounting or something, then it's much harder to hit that ship. I'm going to need, um, you know, a one, two or three on a D12. Mm -hmm. So I'm significantly mm -hmm. less likely to hit it. Um, and then the dice um, that, uh, 
you roll also have a damage value. So a D6 is going to do one damage, a D8 is going to do two, a D10 is going to do three, a D12 is going to do five. So although it's harder to hit, for example, a fighter with a mega uh, laser, when it does hit, it's just going to cream it instantly. Yeah, I was going to say, um, and then it knocks it out almost completely when you do hit um, because of the amount of damage it does. But just like Gaslands, uh, certain weapons can do additional damage as well. You can roll crits in this game, which give you additional damage on top of that. Yeah, so if you roll a one on the dice, then that counts essentially as two. And so you kind of add another dice um, of that same type, uh, because what you do then is having rolled your hits and any of those dice that have, that have managed to, to hit the silhouette or lower, the opposing player then picks up the same dice, the ones that have hit, and rolls them as their shield saves. And I might have a shield value of of one or of five if i'm a bigger ship and now i need to get equal to or under that shield value on these dice so again a d6 um is easier to save uh with shields because if i've got a shield value of four i'm quite likely to save that's a that's a one two three or four that i roll on the dice saves it whereas if i get struck by a d12 weapon even my shield value of four is only gonna uh, help me in a in a third of uh, of the cases right. so that same mechanic of Picking the dice, rolling low, and then checking against, uh, in this case, your shield stat, uh, and then anything that gets through does those those damage values that that I talked about. So I really I'm quite I'm quite proud of this dice mechanic because a it involves funny shaped dice, which mm -hmm. is brilliant, and b it's got this sort of counterintuitive, but once you once you figure it out, really elegant spread of things that are small should be targeted by light weapons and things that are big should be targeted by heavy weapons. And I'm really pleased with it. Well, Mike, I'm sorry to say our time is actually running short and there's about a million more things that I wanted to talk about. There are, as you said, designing your own corporations, competitive advantage section where, I mean, there's campaigns, advanced rules, dangerous space, all sorts of contracts. There are just so many different parts to the game that we haven't even touched on. Um, but let's get into the very basics. Now, we have talked about this being a miniature agnostic game. How can people... What Can you talk to us a little bit about what spaceships people might use, what scale people might use because it changes, and how people might find this game out in the wild? Yeah, so um, it's an Offspray blue book, so you'll be able to pick uh, A Billion Suns uh, up as a paperback from wherever you pick up your uh, your other Offspray uh, War Games rule books. Mm -hmm. um, and it's the same price as all the rest, so that's uh, sort of 13 quid in the UK, $20 in the US. Um, so, yeah, very inexpensive. Once you've got the rule book, um, you've got pretty much everything that you need to play the game from a rules perspective. If you head over to the game's official website, a billion suns dot space, uh, then you can download um, quick reference cards and the command helms uh, and so on so that you can you, you got all the bits and bobs to get started. In terms of miniatures, like you say, um, the game's been designed to support miniatures from any range in any scale and on any base. So all the measurements are from essentially the, the, the center of the model, which in most cases for a spaceship game is the sort of flight peg of the mm -hmm. model. So if you've got um, if you've got spaceships from any other game or board game, um, then you'll find that they work just fine um, in A Billion Suns. Or if you want to invest in some new toys, then um, there's a ton of uh, great manufacturers out there. So and it, again, if you head to the uh, Billion Suns website, there's a there's a page on there, which um, I'm 
uh, updating all the time as I discover more um, exciting spaceship ranges um, that people can dip into. Personally speaking, I, I've played with um, a bunch of models from Brigade game, uh, Brigade Models uh, in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, he makes really lovely spaceships. I've played with Drops uh, Fleet Commander models. Those are gorgeous models uh, and really fun to make because they're so beautifully put together. Mm-hmm. Um, right now I'm playing with a bunch of Star Wars Armada miniatures because I'm a total Star Wars nut uh, mm-hmm. and that makes me happy. Um, yeah, and, uh, you know, at a pinch, you could even um, play smaller uh, scale games using um, X-Wing miniatures. You could just say that some of the larger X-Wing miniatures are maybe some of the larger ship classes if you wanted to count the Millennium Falcon as a frigate inside your game on your table. You know, who, who's to argue with you if those exactly. are the spaceships that you've got around? And uh, yeah. one of the things, and just like Gaslands, you have a great online community. I mean, the Facebook page already has almost 2,000 people who are mm. uh, members of it. Uh, and people have been painting ships and building fleets uh, for months. And so there's already, even though the game is only now about to come out, the game has a ton of online presence and content. Um, through Facebook, if you go to A Billion Suns on Facebook, um, in addition to the website, Lots of great resources in both places. Yeah, that's right. And we haven't even got into the fact that uh, with the rise of three, with the, the, the ever cheapening 3D mm-hmm. printer market, um, if you wanted to learn to design miniatures, spaceships are the easiest place to start because basically you just stick some boxes and some circles together in your 3D program. And now you're a miniature designer. Yeah, it's so good. And uh, they just keep getting better and better and better. Well, Mike, thank you so much for coming on, man. Uh, as always, pleasure. it is a pleasure to talk to you. And I am looking forward to, now that I have uh, a billion sons in my grubby little paws, playing some games. Um, now, for those of us who aren't able to play the games as we are in lockdown, depending on where we are in the world, you have put up solo rules for this. So if people want to be able to play and they're locked down, they can. Yep, that's right. I, um, the game is two to four players normally, um, but because the game is sort of like it kind of resembles a real-time strategy video game. Um, I'd always wanted to create a sort of single-player story mode for the game. Um, and because I've been doing a lot of playtesting recently of, of new stuff, I needed a solo mode as well. So um, yeah. I've gone ahead and written solo play rules. You can download them for free from abillionsons.space. Um, and it doesn't affect the game too much. It's mostly um, you play the game as normal and the game tries to... Um, pervert the course of justice and frustrate you and uh, and nice. delete things that you put out. <clears throat> oh, that's cool. I can't wait to try it. Uh, yeah, cool. Well, Mike, thank you so much for making the time to talk with us today. It's, uh, it, you know, I love everything that you make and I'm looking forward to putting together some spaceships. Oh, I can't decide where to start, but uh, maybe I saw some some Gundam ships uh, and some some Yamato ships in the in the hobby shop the other day. I might just have to get those and hopefully they're small enough. Nice. Oh, cheers, Brad. Well, as our good friend Casey always says, ladies and gentlemen, when you are playing the games that we know and love, I hope that your dice roll hot. I hope your beverages are cold. But more than anything else, we at Cast Dice hope that you are having fun. Good night, guys. He's
Gone, and the trap are hungry hounds. He's gone, and the.